This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. with the line of presidential succession. If something happens to the president, God forbid, who takes over? The vice president, everybody knows that. Well, I think one of the things most people know is what happens if something happens to both the president and the vice president. Let's say they're together and they're, uh, you know, they're in a car accident. Who then takes over? Well, then it is the Speaker of the House. Well, what happens after the Speaker of the House? Then it's the President pro tem of the state Senate. Now you're into territory that most people, not not state Senate, the uh, President pro tem of the U.S. Senate. Then you're into, uh, which by the way is Patty Murray now. Most people don't know that. But you're into territory that you may know this, but most people probably don't. So it goes Vice President, Speaker of the House, President pro tem of the Senate, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, and then who's next? Much like Bill Goldberg used to say. After the Secretary of the Treasury, you have the Secretary of Defense. You are sixth. If you're the Secretary of Defense, you're sixth in line of presidential succession. It is a pretty important job. Now, putting aside the aspect of presidential succession, Right now, first of all, the, the let, let's say, God forbid, America is attacked. The first person that whoever notices this attack reaches out to is the Secretary of Defense. Those of you that saw the movie Independence Day know when Rod Steiger got word that the aliens were coming, what's the first thing he says? He says, get me the Secretary of Defense. So it's an important thing. And not, not that the Secretary of Defense is only worried about aliens, there's a lot of things on this planet that are of paramount concern to the Secretary of Defense right now. There is a war in Eastern Europe which we are intimately engaged in, okay? The war in the Middle East, we are incredibly engaged. Not only the Israel versus Hamas in Gaza situation, but you see, it's escalating to the point where we're actually trading shots with multiple foreign countries. Yemen, uh, we're going into Iraq to kill, uh, you know, militants in Iraq as well. And there's a lot of tension because of it, because a lot of people are saying, the Iraqis are saying, we don't want you here. We don't want your troops here. Get out of our country. And the United States is saying, well, we're going to go and find these terrorists and terrorist supporters and Iranian-backed militias, wherever they happen to be. And if you look at the situation in the Middle East, 
whether it's this terrorist attack that ISIS carried out on Iran or whether it's the ongoing back and forth over Israel and uh, Gaza, whether it's the role of Qatar, Qatar now saying that it's going to be much more difficult to get the hostages out because they uh, murdered, the, uh, they killed the head of Hamas. It's a powder keg. And you would think that the person who is at the very least aware of, but you would think maybe the point person on all this, is the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. A fascinating story has emerged in the last 24 to 36 hours, which is incredibly damning. And I'm not trying to make too much of this, but this is incredibly important. The Secretary of Defense waited, he, he just disappeared. He was hospitalized at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. We still don't know exactly what for, but this is crazy. The Pentagon waited three days to tell the White House that the Secretary of Defense was hospitalized. I want you to understand this. The President of the United States had no idea that his own Secretary of Defense was in the hospital. They waited four days to tell Congress and most senior Pentagon service leaders. So Austin was hospitalized on Monday, that's New Year's Day, and they told White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan about it on Thursday. From Monday to Thursday, they had no idea this guy was in the hospital. And by the way, we still really don't know the full details of what he was in the hospital for. But the Pentagon said members of Congress were told late Friday afternoon. So a lot of the Pentagon staff found out when the department released a statement about Austin's hospitalization. Austin released a statement last night saying he looks forward to returning to the Pentagon soon and added, I also understand the media concerns about transparency. No, you don't. No, you don't. And I recognize I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. I commit to doing better. Wait a minute. This is so much worse than not telling the public where you are every second of the day. Oh, I mean, that's important. This is so much worse. The president, the national security advisor, didn't know this guy was in the hospital. And, by the way, his number two, she was away as well. She was away in Puerto Rico. The, uh, sec- the Deputy Secretary of Defense. What happens, let's say, if China just decided to invade Taiwan? There's got to be some American, I don't know, if, not, if response isn't the right word, at least American awareness, some sort of American action. And yet, the Secretary of Defense was in the hospital, and the President didn't even know. The National Security Advisor didn't even know. The Secretary of State, the key, the head of the House Armed Services Committee, the Senate Majority Leader, the Speaker of the House, none of them knew. This is crazy. Now, I, I recognize uh, that Lloyd Austin, who's a retired four-star general, I recognize that he's the, you, you could tell the type. If you've had military Men, and I'm sure it's true of women too, but it's doubly true of men. If you've had military men in your families, 
you know the type. Lloyd Austin fits the the type to a T. Strong, silent type, very, very private, doesn't want to burden you with anything that he's going through, doesn't want to make a big deal about any of his personal issues. This is crazy. When you're the Secretary of Defense, you're sixth in line to be the President of the United States at a time when the United States is in the middle of conflict after conflict. You can't just disappear and not even tell the president. I recognize there's some things that we in the public don't know about national security and about the ongoing sausage making of what goes on in government. I, I understand that. I mean, not. I don't think we need to keep as much from the public as that we do, but I recognize there's some stuff that for national security reasons the public just can't know. But for the president not to know? This is crazy. So... um, I'm curious what you think about this. I'm curious what you think the repercussions should be. There are some people, mostly Republicans, and I hate to have this be a partisan thing, but there are certain people that are saying that uh, there's got to be consequences on this, and he might even have to resign. You know, you have some of these lawmakers, they're calling for Austin to testify before Congress about this, which I think is good, or even to be ousted. I'm curious what you think of this. Why the level of secrecy? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. To me, honestly, again, I'm not calling for him to be canned because of this. However, this is inexcusable in terms of a lapse in judgment. And if this is the kind of judgment that he makes about just informing the president and the national security advisor of whether he's in the hospital or not. Can we trust his stewardship of the Pentagon? I think this is incredibly damning. Someone that I don't necessarily always see eye to eye with um, was Mike Pence. He was on, I think it was Meet the Press yesterday, one of the Sunday shows, and he said this, and I I found myself agreeing with just about everything he said. Here's uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. To think that at a time when we have allies at war in Eastern Europe and here in Israel, uh, that uh, the leader of of America's military at the Pentagon would be uh, out of commission for a number of days, and the President of the United States didn't know about it. I think it it was a dereliction of duty, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and the Secretary and the administration, frankly, need to step forward uh, and give the American people the facts. This is bad. And it seems like every hour it's getting worse in terms of uh, how this was handled. This was the the bad news bears all over again. I mean, this is just ridiculous. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. So I don't know what Lloyd Austin was thinking, uh, General Lloyd Austin. I have a lot of respect for him. I have not agreed with the things that he's done with respect to uh, both the military and foreign policy, but I always respected him. But this is just weird because a former chief of staff at the Department of Defense even came forward and says there's a system in place to know where folks like the Secretary of Defense are at any given time. But that's what makes this lack of communication and knowledge even more baffling. There's system after system, redundancy after redundancy, to make sure you know where the Secretary of Defense is. God forbid there's a nuclear attack. 
and you have to gather the cabinet in, you know, an hour, 60 minutes to get them to a secure and undisclosed location? How would they have known where he was? This is bad. All right. Speaking of national security, do you know what an EMP is? EMP, or electromagnetic pulse, is either a very real threat to all of us, which could result in a lot of us being without power for some time, could be a naturally occurring EMP, or it could be uh, something that is the result of a weapon, and it would be disastrous for the country or any area that's hit with an EMP. So we're going to talk about the EMP. So uh, there are some people that don't believe that an EMP is likely. You know, uh, you read some criticism of folks that advocate for EMP preparedness, and they describe these folks as being worried about like a James Bond villain death ray, uh, the kind of thing you only see in movies. Is, so we're going to get into this with John Hollerman in about 10 minutes. Uh, he has been active on this for a long time, and he's of the, uh, of the opinion that we need to actually make sure we're prepared for if something ever goes down with the electric grid. So we're going to get into that. And then next hour, uh, we'll have a little fun. Uh, Mark Evanier is going to be here. He is a comic book and television writer known for his work on the animated television series Garfield and Friends. I love Garfield and Friends. You know, sometimes when I start this show, I'll start it with a a quote before I even say anything. Most of the time, those quotes are the opening quote from Garfield and Friends. You know, I, again, I don't always advertise that, but I am. And that's how impact, again, I haven't seen the show in decades, but I still remember, I still sometimes reference these shows on the air. This show was so impressive and so ahead of its time. And we'll talk about not only that show, but where we are with the entertainment business these days. It was the Golden Globes last night. I caught a little bit of it, not much because I needed to take a nap, but I did see a little bit of it. I'll give you my take on the uh, Golden Globes. 800-848-9222, and it was the uh, last weekend of regular season football. We'll chat about that as well. 800-848-9222. Rocco is in Saratoga. Rocco, what do you make of this Lloyd Austin situation? What I make of it, Frank, first of all, good evening. And I hope your weekend was good. great. It was great. Thank you. Okay, great. And Mark Evandier, he's a comic book legend. He's written books on comic books. I, I love the guy. Absolutely. Brilliant man. Absolutely. He is. I can't wait for the segment, Frank. But Lloyd Austin, this is the dark state. You're not going to, maybe they didn't like the job he was doing. He wasn't towing the line about Iran being someone we should be negotiating with. And maybe they pushed him down the stairs after a few drinks. You know, New Year's Eve, right? New Year's Eve, he drank too much and he happened to trip and fall down the stairs. Now he's at a commission. Now, right? 
conspiracy theory? I don't know. You tell me. Well, but Rocco, if if that was the case, if he was the result of some sort of deep state hit or something along those lines, then I would think the president and the members of Congress and the national security advisor would know where he was. And I can't. I don't think that uh, Biden would do that to his own Secretary of Defense. I think he would fire him if uh, the Secretary of Defense wasn't on board with where you know, where the president was, I think he would just let him go. But uh, I think this is um, quite troubling, honestly. And, you know, the more we learn about it, the more troubling it becomes. You know, you have, for Biden, this is a disaster because the impact of this non-disclosure is, one, you have the practical implications of it. Because from a national security perspective, the most alarming aspect of this is it undermines confidence both in from the public and the press, and not just the public and the press, but within the national security system itself, that vital information is getting shared. It also raises questions about the closeness of Austin to the other members of the National Security Council and the president, that for days his absence could go unnoticed. You know, if Matt Blaze wasn't here for one day, I would say, hey, where's Matt Blaze? Has anybody seen Matt Blaze? But apparently, and this is not an exaggeration, Matt Blaze and I have a closer working relationship than the president and the secretary of defense do. Isn't that alarming? Additionally, but beyond that, you have the political implications. As a political matter, this is going to give a lot of ammo to Republicans and obviously President Trump in particular. Because one of the biggest questions in the administration is whether or not there's going to be any accountability for this. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. 800-848-9222. Michelle is in Westchester. Hi, Michelle. Good morning. Morning. Uh, of course, it's, it's unacceptable that nobody knew where he was. I can't, and there's so much secrecy in the White House. Holy cow, with Joe Biden, we don't even know the half of it. But how, with all the wars going on in the world and potential, that they would not have wanted to speak to him all week regarding anything? Uh, You know, that's the other thing, right? I mean, you would think that uh, with what's happening with Israel, what's happening with Ukraine, what's happening, you know, in terms of Yemen, what's happening with Iraq, what's happening in terms of uh, uh, of tensions ongoing with, as you point out, North Korea, but also the China Taiwan situation. You think maybe uh, Mm -hmm. you talk once a day, even if it's just a a quick check in. Uh, I mean, I, I found this just incredibly damning the thing is people don't even care there's so much secrecy we don't know so much going on i mean american people they just keep voting for these same people that's the scariest thing yeah well thanks michelle i appreciate it you know this is really disconcerting because this is not just a matter of the public being kept in the dark this is the president being kept in the dark and, you know, everyone jokes around about how, um, and, and I know some people aren't joking, but everyone frequently mentions how Joe Biden is out to lunch, how he's not necessarily on top of things. I mean, this doesn't do anything to put any of those reservations that people have to rest. I mean, this is bad. All right. 
uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to talk EMP in just a little bit. If you want to email me, you can do so, frank.morano at uh, redappleaudionetworks.com. That's uh, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. We will talk EMP with John Hollerman straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Electric Avenue. Uh, he was never able to replicate the success that he had with this song, but uh, a, a great artist nonetheless. You ever wonder what happens if all the electricity goes away? Those of you that lived through uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, you remember what it was like to be without power for a day, two days, three days, four days. Some people, five days. You remember the blackout back in 2003, in the summer of 2003, when in the middle of the blistering heat, all the power went down all over New York. And if you wanted air conditioning, at least in my case, you know, and you wanted to sleep for a few minutes, I had to go out to my car and enjoy a few minutes of air conditioning just to get a little bit of rest because it was so hot you couldn't. Sleep. Now, air conditioning for a lot of people is a little bit of a luxury, but there are so many different aspects of your life that rely on power, electricity. What if it all just went away? Well, that brings us to our discussion about the electromagnetic pulse, EMP. If you listen to people that have been kind of sounding the alarm on this for some time, it's not a new thing. People have been talking about this for a while. They say that this could be disastrous and we're not really prepared for the implications of some sort of electromagnetic pulse. If you listen to others, they say this is the kind of thing that a James Bond villain would cook up and this is not a realistic concern for a lot of people. I want to try and get some answers on how realistic the worries are about EMP, either an EMP attack or a naturally occurring EMP. We'll get into the difference. Uh, John Hollerman is kind enough to join us. He is the president of Grid Down Consulting. He's also deputy director of the U.S. Task Force on National and Homeland Security and a member of the board of advisors of EMP Act America, Impact America. John, thanks so much for uh, staying up late with us. Hey, Frank, thanks for having me on. All right, let's start with the basics. Uh, most people have heard the term 
EMP or electromagnetic pulse? What is it? Well, so there's multiple ways uh, EMP would affect our country. Uh, the first, uh, as far as threats goes, the most serious is a nuclear EMP threat. And today, basically any enemy nation, uh, any nuclear nation for that matter, uh, first strike doctrine is uh, nuclear EMP. And the second would be a solar flare CME could produce the E3 uh, portion of an EMP. Uh, and then you have cyber attacks and uh, physical attacks against the grid. Uh, so we're talking about events that could take down the national electric grid or even a regional area of our country. So those would be the four ways that a uh, the, the four threats against our national electric grid. And so uh, if there's an EMP attack or if there's some sort of EMP incident, what happens to the electric grid? Is it down and for how long? Uh, so in the case of a nuclear EMP or a solar flare, a CME, and just so you know, we're entering a solar maximum here uh, starting in January uh, through the end of this year. Uh, the, the sun uh, rolls in cycles. Uh, we've seen three large X-class solar f- flares that just missed the Earth here recently. But in essence, uh, yes, it does. If it's a large enough event, uh, it could absolutely take down the, the nationwide electric grid. And so it couples with long line transmission lines and uh, it, it travels. And the, the biggest vulnerability of this country is our high voltage transformers. Uh, they weigh about 400 tons each. There's about 3,000 of them in this country. And that's what steps up and steps down power coming out of a, a, a power facility and then travels long distances to your local town or to the factory. And those high-voltage transformers, uh, we replace about 12 of those a year. And in the past, they came from Germany and South Korea, which were allied countries of ours. And more recently, we're seeing a lot more of them come from China, but that's a whole other topic. Uh, but in essence, what, what the American people need to understand is the with today's uh, with today's uh, ability to, to supply parts and to, to build those, the first one would not arrive to our shore within before 24 months. So it takes it takes about two years to build one of those high-voltage transformers. And if we lose the high-voltage transformers in this country, we're, you're not getting the first one for 24 months. You're talking about no electricity uh, at all. Now, um, I know you mentioned that's sort of the, the first aspect of uh, a nuclear attack. I mean, I think if you look at a lot of the entities that America has been in conflict with, except until recently Russia again, but a lot of the entities that America has been in contact with uh, or in conflict with entities like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, now Hamas, they, they strike you as groups that are somewhat disorganized, but very interested in sowing discontent, not necessarily a state actor. Uh, A group like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, thank goodness, is not getting a nuclear weapon anytime soon. Is there a scenario in which a non-state actor, one of these terrorist groups, might be able to carry out an EMP attack? Yes, uh, there's there's multiple multiple different scenarios. First off, I would say it would not be impossible for them to get nuclear material. Uh, to follow the Soviet Union here, 
uh, whatever that was, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, a lot of nuclear material went missing. Uh, so there is a lot of nuclear material, you know, kind of floating around there on the black market. I don't want to say it's easy for them, uh, but they could absolutely get it. And an EMP, uh, a nuclear EMP could be launched off of a, a, a high-altitude balloon, uh, like we saw here recently coming from China. So that would be one way. Probably their easiest way to do this is – uh, there's a report from the Congressional EMP Commission back in 2017. I can't remember the exact title how it's phrased, but it's uh, I think it's called non-nuclear uh, EMP attack vectors. Uh, but essentially, uh, you can build a directed energy EMP weapon uh, with, with parts that you can source off the Internet. Uh, the instructions for how to build wow. this are on the Internet. And so essentially what, what could happen is they could build one of these in like a, a box truck or a U-Haul truck, and they could drive it around and just take out individual high-voltage transformer locations around this country over the course of 24 hours. They could build two of them, uh, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, a third one in Texas because we have three electric grids in this country. And within, within 24 hours, they could destroy enough transformers or take down the entire electric grid. Uh, so let's talk about I mean, if people are just tuning in. We're talking with uh, John Hollerman. Uh, he is with uh, Grid Down Consulting, also uh, deputy director of the U.S. Task Force on uh, National and Homeland Security. Uh, you can check out his group at griddownconsulting.com. Let's talk about the vulnerabilities in the infrastructure. You mentioned some of those uh, transformers that uh, that have been put together by China. What critical infrastructure sectors are are most vulnerable to an EMP event, and what steps have been taken to mitigate the, those vulnerabilities at this point? All of the 16 critical infrastructures in this country are, are reliant on electricity to function. In fact, every aspect of human life today revolves around electricity to function. Uh, if you take down the national electric grid, there's no phones, no internet, no TV, no radio, no banking. Uh, the, the big ones, no interstate trucking, no food, no gas pumps, nothing. Your heat, air conditioning in your house doesn't work. So, uh, what, the, the, so people in New York City, like you mentioned at the the onset of this, like remember Hurricane Sandy, and you could talk about the Texas situation here a few years back with the cold snap and mm. then losing electricity but these were all localized regional events and when you have localized regional events the rest of the country rallies together and we send food and we send supplies and uh, everybody else's phones are working everybody else the interstate trucking still functional so there, there's the ability to rally and come to the aid if we're talking about a nationwide event there's nobody coming uh, in fact the, i've got some dod reports on my website there that show that 99 percent of the the U.S. military uh, bases in this country are reliant on the civilian electric grid. Uh, they have they only have 48 hours of backup diesel. They've warned Congress in the case of a nationwide grid down event, uh, they would not be able to respond to societal collapse um, like the Hollywood movies you see with the box trucks rolling down the the road and passing out MREs and things of this nature. That's never going to happen in real life. Uh, so one of the things you didn't mention is I was a member of the Electromagnetic Defense Task Force. Mm. Uh, which is a three-day uh, joint services. Uh, all your alphabet agencies were there, the military, uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, DOE, CIA, NSA. The, you know, It was a three-day wargaming event at the LeMay Wargaming Institute on the aftermath of an EMP. And the thing that I, I knew it to be true to a degree, but uh, sitting through that event 
um, and, and that working event just blew my mind that I, I assume that somewhere <clears throat> somebody had a plan of action uh, for this. But if, you're, if your listeners get nothing else, FEMA has zero plan of action to deal with a nationwide grid down event. Uh, Congress and, and, and the White House and the government has zero plan of action to deal with a nationwide grid down event. The United States military, the National Guard, have zero plan of action to deal with a nationwide grid down event. Uh, it's just kind of considered beyond design basis. And some of the things that, you know, I was privy to at that, that wargaming event here, oh, what was it, four or five years ago, uh, was kind of really eye-opening, you know, from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the things that would happen with the nuclear sites. And, yeah, it's just – it's kind of shocking. And, and that's the frustrating thing uh, as the deputy director at the, the EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security here. Uh, we, and, and alongside our patriarch, Dr. Peter Pry, who is part of the uh, EMP congressional – Sure, EMP he's been a guest – he had been a guest on the show, obviously, before he yes. passed away. Yeah, and so for – since 2004, I mean, we've been – petitioning Congress and and all but begging them to take this threat seriously. I mean, this is the future of warfare. The next war is going to be fought in the electromagnetic spectrum. It's not going to be fought with the, the fastest airplane or the biggest aircraft carrier. It's going to be fought with cyber attacks and EMP attacks, and that's how you're going to win that the, the next, World War III, the next uh, large war. So we've been Man, we've been doing everything we can. We've had four bills over the years at, at the federal level, uh, trying to get that through, and they've all been defeated in the uh, before they even make it out of committee. Unfortunately, the electric utility lobby, and we can talk more about the electric utilities and their influence, but they spent over a billion dollars in the last ten years uh, lobbying. That's just at the federal level wow. uh, to prevent. Uh, any regulation on the electric grid. Why? And, well, know, what's the what's the reason? That. What's the reason for that? Sure. So uh, the electric utility, so they're the second largest lobbyists in D.C. They're bigger than big oil. The only lobbyists that have them beat are pharmaceuticals. And they are the only industry in this country at this point that has no federal oversight. They write their own critical infrastructure protection standards. Uh, it, it, they, they make up their own rules, and, and they, they follow their own rules. And the federal government has no authority for national security interests uh, to tell them to do anything. And that's crazy because I just mentioned all 16 critical infrastructures and every aspect of human life today revolves around the electric grid. Uh, so the fact that they have nobody looking over their shoulder wow. uh, within, within, with teeth, right, to, to force them to do anything, the only industry in America, I mean, you can't buy a can of food. I mean, when you buy a can of food, you just take for granted that the FDA's looked at that factory and it's safe to eat. When you get on a plane, you know the FAA's inspection the planes. When you buy a car, you can't buy a car without a seatbelt. So I mean, if I'm a free market capitalist guy, but if there's one industry in this country that we must have to survive, and it's a national security interest, I mentioned the military bases rely uh, 99% on civilian electric. That's the one industry that we need to be, uh, at least security-wise, looking over their shoulder and making sure that they are doing what they need to do to keep the American people safe. Um, really interesting. I want to come back to preparedness in a second, but you alluded to solar flares a moment ago. What is the likelihood of a naturally occurring electromagnetic pulse? Not something that's a result of a, a nuclear attack from North Korea or a hostile non-state actor. What could nature do on the EMP front? Sure. So if we go back to 1859 was the last time a 
large solar flare hit the Earth. It's called the Carrington event. You can Google that, check that out. Um, but back then, uh, we didn't have the technology that we have today. Uh, but still, the the um, telegraph machines uh, caught on fire. The northern lights were so bright in New York City that people were getting up in the middle of the night and starting to get ready for work. Uh, and we we know that solar flares happen uh, depending on where you categorize them. About every 50 or 75 years, massive CMEs, uh, coronal mass ejections that make a direct hit on Earth. Uh, we know this from ice records and from, from tree ring records over in Japan. Uh, and we're way, way overdue uh, for a large solar flare hitting this Earth. NASA projects it's 12 percent per decade. Uh, and if you do the math, since 1859, we are uh, we're, we're kind of running on borrowed time. So and the, and the po- go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, no. Go finish your thought. I was just saying. So, I mean, so the point is, is a massive solar flare, unlike a nuclear EMP, which which could take out the electricity for this entire country, a massive CME that hit the earth. And one just missed us here about six years ago uh, by one week that NASA said would have taken down the electric grid for the entire northern hemisphere. This takes down the electric grid, uh, you know, as the earth turns over the course of a day or two, it'll take down electric grids all around the northern hemisphere. Oh, so given the fact that on the naturally occurring EMP front, it seems not a question of if but when, what are some practical steps that governments can take to prepare for an EMP event? You know, whether we're talking the national government or municipal governments, state governments, or businesses. If I have a you know a small to mid-sized business and I want to keep the power on somehow, what can I do? Or individuals, what are the what can all of us who are listening to this program now do to mitigate some of these vulnerabilities? Okay, so those are three separate questions Got and three it. long Got answers. It. Okay. So I'll try to tackle the first one first. As far as governments go, uh, we're watching uh, probably four years ago because, uh, and again, I go back to the 2017 EMP Commission reports that were released. One of them is called Forward Views on Electromagnetic Pulse. Uh, all every every enemy nation of ours is taking this threat serious. We we've we've got it in their war doctrine. I mean, the report that's released is the unclassified version. But we know from foreign writings that this is the first strike doctrine for for these countries. They're taking it serious as well. China has fast-tracked, this was three or four or five years ago, a a grid-hardening situation because they're preparing for the next war. Russia has also taken these these measures. Russia, they've never created a smart grid. In their country, uh, their their grid still old tech, I guess we call it knob tube, you know, vacuum tubes right. and, and things of that nature. Uh, and then you have countries like North Korea. I mean, they barely have electricity to begin with. <laughs> but uh, then you have Iran, and uh, you know, a country like Iran, they consider an EMP attack Sharia compliant uh, because they don't. It doesn't actually kill a single person. A, a nuclear EMP is detonated at 300 kilometers above the ground. Uh, you, you don't. It doesn't affect. It doesn't physically affect anybody. All it does is wipe out all the, the electronics with small with small silicon microchips, which we know is basically everything today, right? So that's the problem from a government point of view. So I kind of poo pooed the federal government that they haven't done anything, but this is a a mind blowing operation to try and protect from this because. Everything has microchips in it. Say everything is vulnerable to to a nuclear EMP attack. But what we at the uh, uh, 
the EMP task force and secure the grid coalition and some of the other organizations uh, that we work alongside, what we're advocating for is at least take the threat seriously and harden the critical components, the power generation facilities, the high voltage transformers. These are things you just can't run down to Walmart and buy parts for to replace. That, like I mentioned with the high voltage transformers, they take two years to replace. Uh, these critical components of the grid need to be hardened. They must be hardened uh, in order that you do have the ability to come back from this. Because if you don't do that, what we're looking at here, Frank, is a continental time machine. No electricity in this country. The Congressional EMP Commission told wow. Congress in 2004 that 90% of Americans would die within the first year of starvation, disease, societal unrest. Uh, and so this is a catastrophic problem. You can't protect every you know, individual node from this risk, but we can protect enough that we can rebuild from it. And, you know, we may go, most areas would probably go a significant amount of time without power, but if you could just get power on to a couple cities, um, like we've advocated, like our, our large dams, which are, were built a long time ago, they still have the you know the old levers and the the wheels to operate them. They've hooked up computers to them, but we've advocated, hey, that's fine, but have the ability to still operate that dam and still operate some of these facilities with with the old tech, if that makes sense. And uh, um, if you get power on in a couple places in the country, you you might be able to uh, provide a way of life for the people living there in in the sense of like rebuilding and repairing the rest of the grid. So if someone has a home generator or if I have a, a business that has a, you know, a small private generator, or if there are things like solar panels, would those be affected? And what about vehicles? I mentioned uh, sneaking out to the car during the blackout of 2003 to get a little air conditioning. Would vehicles still work? Okay, so yeah, anything anything grid tied is going to be affected. So generators, solar panels, uh, things of that nature, they're absolutely uh, going to be hit. Uh, if you're talking, and, and so let's say, I mean, there there are protection devices for uh, there are ways to build a Faraday cage, a steel Faraday cage for a generator, things of that nature. But let me just put it this way: I mean, if you're in suburban Atlanta. And, and the national grid comes down, and you're the only one cranking the generator. You're the only one in town with lights on. You're going to bring you know hungry people like moths to the flames. So that's not a that's not an an easy solution for a suburban person. But as far as vehicles go, and we can talk more about that here in a minute. But as far as vehicles go, uh, a solar flare or, or a uh, CME uh, that that only produces the E3 portion of the pulse. I didn't get in too depth because we don't have a ton of time. Uh, to explain uh, that you have three pulses from EMP, you get E1, E2, and E3. Uh, with nuclear, you get all three of those. Uh, the E1 is the one that attacks microchips directly. Uh, the E3 comes along, and that's like within a nanosecond, coast to coast. Uh, the second one takes place over the course of like two to five seconds, and that attaches long line transmission lines, and it slowly builds till it melts down uh, different facilities and the high voltage transformers. So as far as a car goes, a, a car has a lot of modern cars have a lot of microchips and computers in them. So they would be affected 
by a nuclear EMP, uh, but a solar flare only produces the E3. So essentially with solar flare, you're more concerned about things that are plugged into the grid at the time, whereas with nuclear EMP, it's going to hit most electronics in the country. So there is debate on what percentage of cars will function. Uh, When the Congressional EMP Commission tested vehicles, this was in 2002 for their 2004 report to Congress, uh, I, I think they found that 30-something percent of vehicles were affected, okay, in a sense of, like, they were shut down uh, and and they stopped functioning. But most of them, I think only 10% were not able to to be restarted. It's been a a few years since I've read that study, so I'm just paraphrasing percentages here, okay? Uh, But that was the newest vehicle tested was a 2002 vehicle, and a lot of the models they tested were in the 1990s. If you know anything about cars today, there's a heck of a lot more microchips and computers that that affect the drivability of a vehicle in 2023 compared to 2002. So there's there's they've also added a lot more EF. Uh, protection to vehicles because of that. Mm. However, we we just don't know. We're just not going to know. But even if you only lost 20% of the cars on the road that were destroyed, right. any major city, you're talking gridlock oh. traffic. No, There's no traffic lights, and then 20% of the cars stop where they're at on the road it's going to completely oh, no. chaos no doubt about it john we're going to have to end it there i very much appreciate the time i hope we can talk again absolutely anytime frank thank you john hollerman he's uh, president of grid down consulting you can check them out uh, griddownconsulting.com also the uh, deputy director of the u.s task force on national and homeland security if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're certainly welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. She said, I don't know if I've ever been good enough. I'm a little bit rusty, and I think my head is caving in. Don't know if I've ever been really loved By a hand that's touched me And I feel like something's gonna give And I'm a little bit angry Well, this ain't over No, not here Not while I still need you You don't hold me This is Push by Matchbox 20 you know, we've been trying to see as many of these uh, award-nominated films as we can lately. So we watched Barbie last week. And there's a very funny scene that involves this song. It might be the maybe the second or third funniest moment in the whole film. I'm not going to tell you what the funniest is because I don't want to spoil it for you because I got quite a chuckle out of it. But... Um, th- there's this song does play a role in the film uh, Barbie. Well, it's official. Big news. Well, yesterday was the end of the 
regular NFL season. And I've been telling you, I'm in this football pool. And coming into last week, I was ahead, or coming into last weekend, or this weekend, I was ahead by one point in my football pool. Now, there's 26 people in this football pool. Some people, you know, uh, know football very well. I was ahead by one point. I have finished the season number one. Number one, thank you very much. I got 153 total points, and meaning games that I picked correctly over the last 18 weeks. I was, I won going away. I beat the guy that finished in second place by six points. So what does this tell you? Well, I think for a lot of you, wow. you should probably get the message that I am the most knowledgeable person about professional football anywhere on the radio. Now, put aside the fact that I don't think that I could name more than 10 NFL players currently. That doesn't even matter. I mean, honestly, with this, I, I don't know if you paid any attention to how I make my football picks, but it's ridiculous. I mean, it's almost totally devoid of any knowledge of the sport. You know, <clears throat> I usually pick the New York and New Jersey teams. I pick all the cities that we air in, and then I pick places that vote kind of the way that I would like, you know. Um, it's very similar to how Diane Chambers used to pick football when she had her cheers pool. You don't even like football. Well, I don't dislike it. Believe it or not, Sam, I was on the pep squad when I was in high school. <laughs> Some of my most stirring memories are of cheering for whomever it was to do whatever they were supposed to do to whomever they were supposed to do it. Boy, spirit like that can really fire a team up, huh? Okay, now, in the first contest... Wait, 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 hey, Diane, you, you don't know the first thing about football, you know that? Who won the football I mean, last you, week? you never even been to a pro game before. Who won last you, week? You don't, you don't watch it on television, you, you haven't even listened won. to one... Are You won, you won, you won, you won. <laughs> Okay, you won. Well, anybody can win every once in a while. Everybody gets lucky. It's law of averages, that's all. Just um, out of curiosity, when was the last time you 1974, won? but I've come close <laughs> a lot of times since then, a lot of times. It was a decade of upsets. L lo and behold, she picks these um, places based on where their opera houses were and stuff, and she wins. That's that's me. All right. Keep asking questions. 